Just for a moment, I want to ask you to close your eyes and just look at the darkness there before you. And imagine your life without light. No corrective lenses would help you. Without light, 2020 vision would mean nothing. And that's because your ability to see comes from a source completely outside of yourself. And that's light. Okay, go ahead and open your eyes. Think about that with regard to truth as well. Because the same is true. Without light, without the light of God's word, we are groping in darkness. We are desperately trying to figure out which way to go if we don't have the truth of God's word. I love that the choir sang today from Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Without God's light, we are clueless. And what we're looking at today is no exception. This is walking in, as I was walking in today, Janelle, in her own uh, special way, said a couple things to me. One, she said, uh, James is the most handsome man in the room. Still. Still the most handsome. Okay. I shared that with James, and I won't tell you what he said. But the other thing Janelle said was, she looked at the passage we're going to be looking at today, and she says, oh, you really opened up a can of worms today. Well, it's just the next passage, Janelle. And so let's turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And we really come upon a great example of what is one of the great benefits and also one of the great challenges of, of studying through a book. When you teach topically, you can basically cherry-pick what you want to talk about. But when you go through a book of the Bible, what's next is next. And whether you want to talk about it or not, it's next. And Mark chapter 10 is one such passage. It is a challenge. And I would love at this moment, Lord, for the rapture to hit. And so maybe we could pause in prayer and maybe that'll happen. Or we could just pick an easy, easy topic like the Trinity or the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man. <laughs> but honestly, think about it. What issues in the Bible have you struggled with for years? And I think if, you were to, if we were to you know, a- actually let you answer that, first of all, it would be a challenge to be honest with it because if we're struggling with it, it, we're a bit insecure with the fact that we're struggling with it because we, we feel like, well, maybe we shouldn't be struggling. After all, we're Christians. We have the Bible. It says what it says. So why the struggle? But we struggle. We struggle with issues like forgiveness. Am I forgiven? I mean really forgiven because my sin was bad. Do I have assurance of my salvation? I mean, I know the Bible says that I'm uh, a Christian is saved, but am I saved? Uh, Perhaps the goodness of God is an issue that you struggle with. I'll be honest, frankly, that's one of the things that I struggle with, of, of marrying the goodness of God with the incredible suffering that we see in the world. It is a challenge. 
And what we'll look at today is probably a challenge as well for many of us, um, and that's the issue of divorce and remarriage. Jesus didn't bring it up, but once it was brought up, Jesus began to speak the truth about it in Mark chapter 10. Of course, as we look at Mark chapter 10, it's in a context, ultimately the context of any passage is the, the paragraph around it and the chapter and the book and the author and the testament and ultimately the Bible itself. And we interpret scripture with scripture. We don't interpret it with the newspaper or even our own emotions or experiences. We interpret scripture and what it means with scripture because the meaning of any text lies with the author, not with the reader. If you read a letter that I send to you, uh, the meaning in that letter is what I, the author, meant. Whether you get that or not is a different issue. But the meaning of it, the intent behind it, is with the author. And so it is our challenge to interpret the Bible with the Bible and not with anything else. And that's tough because sometimes the issues are pretty thorny. Well, so far in the book of Mark, of course, we are getting toward the latter part of it, and as we do, in fact, we're getting toward the very end of Jesus' life. The rest of the Gospel of Mark from this chapter on focuses on Jesus going to Jerusalem for the very last time to die for our sins and rise again. And as we've talked about the Gospel of Mark throughout the series, the emphasis that Mark has been giving is first of all Jesus coming and presenting to Israel the opportunity that they have to uh, accept him as the Messiah and thus the offer that he has of the kingdom of God, the long-awaited Old Testament promise of the kingdom of God. But Jesus recognized pretty early on that the leadership of Israel was not going to believe him and was not going to accept his miracles as from the power of the Holy Spirit and thus validating that he was who he says who he was, that he could offer, in fact, the kingdom of God to Israel. Instead, they assigned his miracles not to the power of the Holy Spirit, but to Satan. And Jesus said, basically, if you persist in this view, this generation is going to lose its opportunity for the kingdom of God. And as we know from the book of Romans and, and book of Revelation and, and Paul's writings, that it will come to a different generation of Jews in the future those who will accept Christ at his second coming. So when Christ recognized that, he began less and less to offer the kingdom to Israel, and now he began more and more to prepare the disciples for this time between the first offer to Israel and the second offer to Israel, as it were, this, this area in between that we are presently in called the age of the church, the age of the church. And he has been laboring with his disciples to teach them that the way you do ministry in the age of the church is basically, by Jesus' example, that of a servant. So all of that brings us to Mark chapter 10. Let's read the first uh, couple of verses as we get into the context of this, uh, of this passage. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. 
Um, one way or another in our lives, every one of us in this room has been affected by divorce. Uh, Kathy and I have been married for 29 years next month, and neither of us have ever experienced divorce um, in our particular, obviously, our relationship. We've been married uh, all this time. But we've, we're both the children of divorces. In fact, my, each of my parents were married one, four, the other five times. So I grew up a very nomadic life as a child, and it was a challenge as a child. And one of the reasons that I grew to love the Word of God and the Lord so much is because, honestly, the Lord was my only safe place to be. And I, by His grace, really clung to Him during those uh, the early years when it was such a challenge um, to grow up a young man in that context. Your situation may be different. Maybe you had parents as well that divorced, or maybe for whatever reason in your own marriage, uh, you have experienced that. And I want to just tell you up front, in spite of the fact that we're going to talk about what the Bible clearly teaches about divorce, about remarriage, and some of it, frankly, isn't so clear, that there is no sin that is bigger than the grace of God. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And it's amazing in our, in our Christian culture, in church, you know, we... One of the reasons I think that our that our culture is so um, that that our that our Christian culture is so frustrated, and we struggle with compromise, is because in the place where grace should be the strongest, it's often the weakest. And our culture, ironically, is a place that is full of grace, as it were, with regard to divorce. Uh, and that's 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 such a shame. I remember Dr. Toussaint sharing with us both here in class as well as the first time I remember him sharing this story was in seminary. I was taking him for a class on Paul's letters, and uh, we were going through 1 Corinthians, and I think it was in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul uses that passage. In 1 Corinthians 6, he talks about not uniting Christ with a harlot, and then he quotes from Genesis where it talks about uh, a man and his wife becoming one flesh. And he quotes that basically saying, you wouldn't unite Christ with a harlot or the things of Christ with a harlot. And then he quotes, because you, you become one flesh. And Dr. Toussaint said that a student raised his hand and said, but, Christ, but, but Dr. Toussaint, isn't Christ, uh, isn't Moses there talking about marriage? Why would Paul use that verse to talk about immorality when, when Moses is using that verse to talk about marriage. Prof, what's marriage? And I remember Dr. T say, saying that, that, that at that moment he was so dumbfounded by the question, he just said, duh. I'll never remember. You can just hear Dr. T say that, duh. He just felt, how do, I, how do I answer? And he said that he gave some answer that he wasn't that confident in, but it wasn't until later, until he got into the book of Malachi, and that he read that she, Malachi says, she is your wife by covenant. It's not the physical union that makes you married. It's the covenant. It's the covenant that you make before God. That's why whenever a person stands before a pastor and the pastor says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, that they don't have to wait till the wedding night for the consummation for that, for that couple to be married. They're married right then. It's an act of God. It's not an act of man. 
I also remember Dr. Toussaint sharing that uh, I don't remember who the man was. If I remembered who the man was and could share you, with you his name, you would know his name because it was a name well known. But he, Dr. Toussaint walked into this man's office and he saw, Dr. Toussaint saw the man huddled over his Bible, clearly struggling. And uh, Dr. Toussaint asked him, what's, what's wrong? And the man looked up and says, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this issue, trying to wrestle with this issue of divorce and remarriage in the Bible. And I say that to say, and Dr. Toussaint shared that to say, that this is not uh, a difficult issue because we just don't know what the Bible says. It's a difficult issue because we know what the Bible says, and it's difficult sometimes to take what the Bible says and to apply it to life. That's a big introduction, wasn't it? To I'm just kind of still delaying, hoping the rapture happens. <laughs> but honestly, it's a challenging scenario. It's a challenging situation, and every scenario is different. But there is wisdom that uh, we can glean here from the text that I hope will be helpful. But notice the context of this, the verses that we just read. The context of verse 2 says that the motive behind the Pharisees' question wasn't that they're coming to Jesus and saying, help us understand what's a difficult thing to understand. They came to him testing him. Their goal was to trap him, to trip him up, and to catch him in some way. Their motive wasn't to find out the truth. Their motive, their motive was to find out a way that they could get him. And they picked a great question because the question, is divorce permissible, is still a tough question today. But notice Jesus' answer. Verse 3, he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? That is a great answer. Not just because Jesus said it, but, but Jesus shows us that when you have a question about divorce or about anything else, and that's why I love, Bob, when you shared what you shared, the answer is, what does the Bible say? That's what Jesus asked. They asked a question, is, it permiss is divorce permissible? Jesus' answer is, what does the Bible say? My opinion, of course, Jesus' opinion is not his opinion, it's, it's, it's the Word of God. But from our perspective, whenever anybody asks you a question on morality, on what, what's right, what should I do, give me some advice, your response, and not in any kind of a snippy or, or better-than-thou way, is, what does the Word of God say? Because that's our standard. Again, imagine your life without light what should I do? You are in the dark unless there is the light of God's Word. What does the Bible say? That needs to be your knee-jerk reaction to everything that life throws at you. What should I do in this situation? Don't lean back on your own understanding, though God's given us a brain, but filter your brain through the Bible. What does the Bible say? What does Moses say is what Jesus said. Paul told Timothy that there will come a season when people will not stand for doctrine, but they will gather around them teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. We are there. 
We are in that situation. And it's not just the United States of America. I remember the first time Kathy and I went to Jordan. Interestingly, Jesus was in what is now modern Jordan when he crossed over the Jordan River into Perea uh, when this question was asked him. When I remember Kathy and I, our first time to Jordan, we went there and instead of our guide, you can't have a, a well, you never know necessarily, maybe I should be kind about it, what you're going to get. Uh, and so we got a guide that wasn't really interested in giving us insight into the biblical significance of Jordan, of which there is much to see there. Instead, he gave us a, sort of a lecture on the modern, on modern Jordan, as it were, in their culture. And one of the things that he felt was really important to share, he said, in Jordan, a man can divorce his wife simply by saying, I divorce you three times. And then he demonstrated it for us. I divorce you, long pause. I divorce you, and then wait for it, I divorce you. When you hear that third time, officially, they're divorced. And when he shared that, I just thought, how degrading. And then I actually turned and looked at the women on our bus. And to a person, they were all staring out the window. It sort of reminded me of uh, like a parent who counts to three so that a naughty child will straighten up. You know, one, two. Jesus' response is the response that you and I have to have whenever a question of morality is raised. What does the Bible say? If somebody's going to have a problem with the truth, let them have a problem with the Word of God and not with you. And that's why, as Chuck was sharing earlier uh, in the service, to speak the truth in love. It's one thing to speak the truth, what the Bible says, but to do it in such a way that the problem is with the text and not with you. Well, look at their response to Christ in verse 4. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They're quoting from Deuteronomy. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So the answer, what did Moses command you? They said, they quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, you're welcome to turn there or just listen as I read Deuteronomy, just the first several verses. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the later husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So from that passage, there were a couple of schools of thought in the time of Christ. One was very conservative, that, that indecency that Moses wrote about was sexual in nature, and that's pretty much it. Or a much more broader liberal view of that indecency was you just find something you don't like, 
like she burns the bagels. That's all it takes. One bagel too far. Remember, their motive was to trap Jesus. Here are the views, Christ. Everybody knew the views, and that's what they were asking. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Which view do you take, Jesus? They answered Deuteronomy 24. But look at what Jesus did. Verse 5. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus says, from the beginning of creation... Remember, Jesus had said, what did Moses command you? Well, Moses wrote Genesis, just like you wrote Deuteronomy. They say, what about divorce? Jesus says, let's back up. What about marriage? Their emphasis was, is it okay for us to get out of it? Jesus' em emphasis is, what does God say about marriage to begin with? And he says several things here. God made them, he said, male and female. Design, God made them. Design shows intent. The way God created it is the way God intended it. Design shows intent. God designed marriage to be a certain way. Um, and I think what we've confused today is the whole issue of freedom of choice. It was the same thing, I think, that Adam and Eve confused initially, or that Satan confused them with it. Satan muddied the water of God's word, and as soon as you begin to do that, then it gets dark, and you're left to grope with your own reasoning or your own rationale as opposed to God's word as your guiding light. God set up the human race with freedom of choice, but what we've confused is exactly what we're choosing. Some feel it's a choice to decide this is right, this is wrong, but that's not how God set it up. God set it up saying, this is right, this is wrong, now you choose whether you obey that or not. It's not a choice to choose right and wrong, it's a choice to do right and wrong. And God's design shows intent. God giving us what we want is not actually his grace or his favor or his gift. It's his judgment. God giving us what we want is his judgment, not his grace. In Romans chapter 1, it indicates that God punished the human race by giving them what they wanted. They wanted idols. He let them have it. They wanted immorality. He let them have it. And as a result, it destroyed them. God's punishment of sin is very often simply just allowing sin to run its natural course. Plato wrote, the life of the nation is the life of the family, written large. 
Isn't that an interesting insight? The life of a nation is the life of the family written large. You want to destroy a nation? Destroy the family. And it's just a, a chain reaction. And we're seeing that. Um, very often we're seeing that. If you can destroy a marriage, you can destroy you can eventually destroy a nation. What does God say about marriage? Jesus' answer is, the Bible says, from the beginning, God made them male and female. Very simply, uh, it's a heterosexual relationship. God, notice Jesus doesn't appeal to the traditional marriage here. There was no tradition at creation. There was just God's intention, God's design. God's design for marriage is clearly to be, from this text that we just read, uh, heterosexual, monogamous, sacred, lifelong commitment. It's not politically correct, but it, it is biblically correct. What does God say? Jesus answers that. It's to be permanent relationship. Well, Jesus' disciples hear this, and they have a question of their own now. Verse 10, in the house, the disciples begin questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So see, the disciples heard what Jesus said, but they have questions like we have questions, and they said, yeah, but Jesus, what about dot, dot, dot? And often when we come to the Scripture with this very issue, well, we read what the Bible says, but then we say, but yeah, but what about dot, dot, dot? Because there are so many different scenarios that you can bring to the table and say, okay, I want to know what the Bible has to say about my particular issue. Jesus' disciples heard what Jesus said, and they come and they ask him uh, more about it. In fact, if you look at the parallel passage in Matthew, the disciples clearly understood that Jesus was saying uh, to, the, to the Pharisees who were looking for a way to trap him, looking for a way to test him, and Jesus basically said, you're asking me, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus basically said, that is a concession that God allowed because of the hardness of heart. But it's not his intent. It's not his best. His best is that it's a permanent relationship. The disciples come to Jesus in Matthew's uh, Matthew's parallel passage and says, well, if that's the way it is between a man and a wife, it's better not to get married. Because they understood Jesus is saying it's permanent. It's a permanent relationship. Um, but what does this verse mean that we just read here in Mark? It's a, that's, a, that's a tough verse, isn't it? Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. What does it mean? Well, some say it means that even though they have divorced, that they're still married in God's eyes, no matter what. And any other remarriage, therefore, is adultery. But think of the implications of this statement. If, if they have made that choice and they marry somebody else, are they to divorce that person and then... Would, would, they, would God be honored 
to remarry the original spouse? And if so, then why is that prohibited in Deuteronomy 24, which is what we read earlier, where the Lord said, look, even if that husband dies, it's not even a divorce, even if he, di- if he dies, she can't go back and remarry him, the original husband. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul gives some extra insight into this issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. And in the parallel passage that I mentioned in Matthew, um, it's Matthew 19 verse 9, but we're looking at 1 Corinthians, but I'll mention Matthew 19, that Jesus said, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness. So Jesus there adds the clarification is probably what Deuteronomy meant with regard to any indecency. And it was clearly in the Greek, it's sexual in nature. The words marital unfaithfulness refer to, to um, sexual unfaithfulness. Well, 1 Corinthians 10, look at, uh, 7, look at verse 10. Paul writes, To the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Now let me pause for a second. When Paul says here, not I but the Lord, and then later he's going to say, I say, not the Lord, he's not wandering in and, out, in and out of inspiration here. You know, well, this isn't really inspired, but let me give you a little sidebar here that's the Apostle Paul that does, that's not really, you know, from the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't mean inspired, not inspired. What he means is Jesus taught on it, Jesus didn't teach on it. So here, initially, when he says, verse 10, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, he means Jesus taught on this. In fact, we just read it, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Verse 12, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord, in other words, Jesus didn't teach on this, but Paul writes that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to, leave, to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Paul is basically saying that if a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever chooses to leave, the believer is not bound. And again, there are different opinions on this. But uh, I take it that if a, if a believer is not bound, then they're free to remarry. This is often called abandonment. And honestly, sometimes this is sort of a catch-all. People want to just kind of throw anything into the abandonment bucket to justify a divorce. It's not all a catch-all category. But let me just say that instances of, again, you, you interpret Scripture with Scripture, broad interpretation. But instances of abuse, you know, abuse is not listed here. It's not listed in Matthew. It's not listed in 1 Corinthians. But Malachi does talk about a man who covering, cover his garment or cover him, his head with violence. And so there's, a, there's definitely a possibility there of, of uh, 
abuse. But with regard to abuse, whether it's physical, whether it's sexual, or even a severe emotional abuse, certainly is cause for separation and, and, and counsel and church discipline. Again, there's so many things that factor in. And if the process of church discipline does take the course that it's intended to biblically and the person remains unrepentant, then Jesus says that we are to treat that unrepentant person as an unbeliever. And if they are an unbeliever, then all of a sudden we're back here to 1 Corinthians 7. If they decide to leave, we treat them as an unbeliever, and the person would be free to remarry. Um, but why did Mark leave out this exception clause? Matthew says it. Why didn't Mark say it? Well, it could have been assumed but more likely in the context of Mark, remember the Pharisees are testing Jesus. In the past few chapters especially, Jesus has been hammering home to his disciples. It's not about the glory. It's about being a servant. Jesus says the issue is not how do I figure out a loophole to get out of the will of God, but rather how do I stay faithful in the situation that may require suffering. Jesus is about to demonstrate that as he goes to the cross. In fact, in the same chapter, Mark chapter 10, a little farther on in verse 45, he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul picks up on that identical idea in Ephesians 5 and says that the husband is to love his wife like Christ loved the church, laying down his life for her. We're not looking for loopholes. We're not looking for ways out of a hard situation. We're looking for God, what is the obedient way? What does the Bible say? And show me how I can stay faithful and follow you in the situation. But we're never supposed to do it alone. And I hope that if you're in a situation or you have family that's in a situation, that you will counsel them to get counsel and to go to someone and ask the question, what does the Bible say? I don't want to go through this situation in my life or, or my children or grandchildren to go through this situation with their eyes closed. What does the Bible say? Give me some wisdom where I can navigate this very difficult path. Divorce is always the result of sin, but not every divorce is sinful. Because divorce for adultery or abandonment by an unbeliever, it's not sinful but it comes about because of sin. So why does Jesus say that to remarry is to commit adultery against the former spouse? That's a hard one. And the best that I can figure is that what Christ means is that it's adultery in the sense that their obligation is to reunite with the former spouse. And if they don't, then, then that is what is considered adultery. There's not a biblical precedent for remarriage otherwise. Um, that's basically what Paul's also saying in 1 Corinthians 7. And I admit to you, part of the challenge, and it is a massive challenge, is to try to communicate this issue in 40 minutes. These are life-changing, lifelong decisions that are made. And so I hope, again, if this is an issue that you are dealing with, that you will seek godly counsel. I remember when Kathy and I built our house, we had a subcontractor that came out. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget this. I was standing in the front yard with him, and our Labrador, 
who's never met a stranger, comes around and just begins, you know, wagging her tail and getting all friendly with this subcontractor. And he gets all friendly with the Labrador. And I said, oh, oh, do you like dogs? And without hesitation, he said, oh, yeah, I've got an ex-wife. And I said, wow. I said, well, I said, well, how long have you been divorced? Eight years. And I thought, eight years? You've been carrying that knee-jerk reaction for eight years? I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking in my mind. And I said, uh, do you have any kids? He says, yeah, we have a daughter. And I said, well, I know you're just here to put plumbing in, but do you mind if I share something with you? He said, sure. And so I told him about my life as a, as a child of divorces. And I said, I don't know why, and I don't need to know why, you and your wife divorced. May, may have a legitimate reason. And I thought, well, you sound kind of bitter, but nevertheless, your daughter needs a god. I said this, your daughter needs a godly father. So for whatever reason it happened, from this point on, I hope that you will think about your daughter. She needs a godly daddy. And you can be that man. And I shared the gospel with him. I have no idea if he was a believer he didn't make any commitment right then and there. But God, uh, God regulated divorce to keep it from getting out of control. You could think of it in, in the sense, I don't know, I haven't studied hard about this connection, so take it with a grain of salt. But think of it in the same way like polygamy. In the Old Testament, you'll find it difficult to find God wagging his finger against polygamy. In fact, I find it difficult that, that it's not more clearly prohibited in the Old Testament. You find it in Genesis, I will create for him a helper, one, so it's there. But God's design shows intent, again, one, not many, but many people, godly, godly kings, um, had many wives. And the Old Testament calls them wives. Again, that's hard for us to swallow in our culture. But they were wives. There were multiple marriages, except for them, they just all happened at the same time. From us, it happens often one at a time, but they are legitimate marriages. And here's my point. God regulated divorce to keep it from getting out of control. It wasn't his original intent. But without exception, it brought great pain upon the participants. Because it, 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 divorce is not always the result of sin. Divorce, I'm sorry, is always the result of sin, but it is not, not every divorce is sinful, as I said earlier. I find it interesting that right after this passage that we just finished here in Mark, it goes on to talk about Jesus says that they were bringing children to him, that they might touch him. We'll look at this next week because it really belongs with the emphasis of next week. But uh, it's not, I don't think it's a coincidence than talking about the necessity of a strong marriage. What's mentioned immediately after that is God's grace and God's love for children. God's love for children. Look at what the Lord told godly King Asa. Take a second and flip back to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. I want you to look at this one more verse. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. 
King Asa had made a very poor decision. And so it's important for you to know that. Asa was a godly king for the most part, especially early on, but he made a bad choice. And as a result of the bad choice that he made, there was a prophet that came to godly King Asa, 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. Look at that. It says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. What God told Asa, God also tells us by principle. And again, it was in the context of a bad decision. Asa was told, it's never too late. I'm not done with you, Asa. And the Lord's not done with you. You may be single again, for whatever reason, you need to know that God's not done with you, that you have not committed the unpardonable sin if you are living as a divorced single, or if you have remarried again, even with a divorce that wasn't, as we've seen, a biblical divorce. Again, there is no sin greater than the grace of God, and the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. In other words, wherever you are right now, God stands ready to strongly support your commitment to him and your commitment to your spouse, wherever you find yourself right now. What does the Bible say? That's the question that we need to ask and answer. Your situation may be very special, or you may know someone that has a special situation. I, I pray that you would lean not on your own understanding, but that you would lean on asking. And if you can't find it yourself, seek someone who can help you, give insight into the Scripture and encouragement to you. God is not done with you. Um, Ecclesiastes says it's better not to vow than to make a vow and break it. You know, I've heard for a long time that, the, that half of all marriages end in divorce. Have you ever heard that? That was done from a study back in the 80s, I believe, or, or the early 90s by the Barna Group. And it was, it's fascinating because there was a more recent study that, that found out that Barna actually classified people who said they were Christians. There was no evaluation necessarily of their life or uh, asking them further questions that helped them define what they were calling Christian. And so the, a more recent study was done in conjunction with Barna, the uh, Harvard-trained social researcher Shanti Feldon did research with Barna and found out that the divorce rate is not 50%, it's actually more like 30%. And the reality is also that if you put, uh, that evangelical Christians are not just as likely to divorce as non-Christians, which is another urban myth that we've been told. In fact, those who commit in their relationship with Christ in their marriage, it drops into the single digits in the percentage. So don't be discouraged. I think sometimes when we hear 
you know, oh, half of all marriages, and it doesn't matter if I'm a Christian or if I'm not a Christian, I'm just as likely to divorce as, a, as an unbeliever. That's not true. It's not true biblically, but it's also not true statistically, which, if it's true, it's true, right? Kathy and I went to a wedding one time where the groom was obviously just going through the motions. It was, uh, I can still remember the tone of his voice. The pastor was leading him through his vows, and he was standing there saying, uh, the pastor would say, repeat after me, uh, I take you, you know, wife, to be my wife. And he said, I take you, wife, to be my wife. To have and to hold from this day, to have and to hold from this day forward. For richer, for richer, richer or poor. I mean, it was just like, this guy was just going through the motions. And about halfway through his vows, I heard my wife next to me go, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> Which is not a good thing to hear. And that, unfortunately, you can guess where that marriage went. And it's because if Christ is the center of your marriage, you need to not be afraid that there are solutions. Um, and there's a, there was one more study. Let me find it because I definitely want you to hear that. Penn State University did this study that showed that 64% of those who said they were unhappy but stayed together reported that they were happy five years later. The point is, at any point in time, you know, if, if, you, were to, if you were to ask, you know, Monday versus Tuesday necessarily, you may think, oh, this whole thing's coming apart. This, this relationship just didn't work out. I don't know how I missed the will of God, but if it was the will of God, it wouldn't be this hard. Well, just wait for Wednesday. <laughs> or, according to this, wait five years. But the reality is you can't judge, certainly, the will of God on how you feel about something. And Christ's point is it's permanent. And if you just dig in and say, you know what, the vow that I made is the vow that I'm going to keep. And Lord, you honor it however you want to. I'm going to be faithful to you, and I'm going to, to stick with what you say, because that's what the Bible says. That the Lord will honor it in one way or another, whether it is through your children coming up to you and saying, you know, thank you, or whether it's through someone observing your life coming to you and saying thank you, or even your spouse coming and saying that, or ultimately Jesus himself telling you, well done, well done. You hung in there, and you were loving, and you loved in, in that context. I think a lot of people never see the power of God in their lives because they never stick it out long enough to give God a chance to work. What God told Asa, God tells us that he stands ready to strongly support your commitment to him and by principle to your spouse as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we've solved nothing today by going through this passage. Probably not a one of us here that hasn't read this text and to some degree has struggled with it. Now, the answers aren't easy because there's no one-size-fits-all when so many scenarios require the wisdom of the entire Bible put together. The issue of divorce and remarriage is not just an issue of Mark chapter 10 
or Matthew or 1 Corinthians 7 or Deuteronomy 24 or even the whole book of Proverbs and Song of Solomon. There's so much that talks about marriage, and all of it is put together into wise counsel. And Father, we ask, we pray a couple of things very specifically. We ask that, first of all, that every marriage in this room that is that has been exposed to the truth of this text would just reaffirm, that every person would reaffirm their commitment to walk faithfully and to fulfill their vows. And that we would also be voices to encourage others to do the same thing, whether it's friends or family, those who are struggling, who need the encouragement to keep going. But we also pray, Father, that we would, we would give the counsel and seek the counsel ourselves to ask in every step of life, what does the Bible say? Because otherwise, it's like we see right now. As we have our eyes closed and we're praying to you, we see nothing. We have no light apart from the Word of God. So give us the courage to seek it, and then give us the courage to obey it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.